Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. You can deliver a baby, and everybody is technically, physically healthy, but if a woman feels that she has been severely violated, it affects that moment, it affects her relationship with the baby, and it affects her whole sense of herself. My instinct was to grab this baby and run. A couple of times I even said to the nurses, what would you do if I just took my baby and ran out of here? And she said, well, every alarm in the place would go off because of all the monitors, and, and of course we would stop you. But that was my instinct. My instinct wanted to grab my baby and run and be alone with him and to comfort him, to be a mother to him. I remember this resident saying to me, you know, I, I know that this affects your feelings and I know that you feel bad, but your feelings cannot be my main concern now. My main concern is the health of your baby. As if they were contradictory to one another, that brings so much guilt. That's so hard to take. To be put in a position where it seems like your needs as a mother are contradictory to those on your babies, when that is impossible, a baby and a mother's need should never be contradictory. Welcome to the fourth and final program in our series, Doctoring the Family. In the first three programs of this series, we talked about how the birth and care of babies, traditionally the domain of the family, came to be dominated by the medical disciplines of obstetrics and pediatrics. Tonight we examine contemporary childbirth, look in on the current frontier of pediatrics, neonatal intensive care, and conclude with a discussion of how some families are reclaiming the responsibility for the care of their children. Doctoring the Family is written by Uta Mason and David Cayley and presented by David Cayley. In 1967, Dr. Niles Newton published a survey of the anthropological literature on childbearing. She found, among other things, that the culture surveyed fell into two broad groupings those that considered childbirth as a normal physiological process and those that considered it a dangerous illness. Our own culture, obviously, falls into the second category. The more obstetricians have learned about the possible complications of labor and delivery, the more they have come to regard the normal process of birth with suspicion and mistrust. And as their mistrust has grown, so has the number of their interventions. Dr. Michelle Harrison in a recent book describing her residency in obstetrics at a prestigious American hospital, reports that during the whole course of her training, she and her colleagues never saw a completely natural birth. In the earliest phase of its development, the emphasis in obstetrics was on the relief of the mother. But as the sense grew that childbirth was a difficult and dangerous process, this emphasis began to shift to the inherent risks to the baby, mother and baby ceased to be considered as a harmonious and indivisible unit. Because the process of labor and delivery was seen in terms of possible pathology, it followed that the mother was a potential hazard to her baby. The obstetrician, therefore, put himself in place of the mother as the baby's advocate and protector. The most graphic example is cesarean section, where the doctor intervenes to rescue the baby from the mother. And as surgical technique has improved, 
so has the incidence of this operation. In Canada, in the 1930s, conservative obstetricians were agonizing over a jump in the cesarean section rate from 3 to 7 percent. Today, the rate in Canada is approaching 20 percent, with individual doctors and hospitals often having even higher rates. Nancy Cohen is a Boston woman who had a cesarean section for the birth of her first baby 13 years ago. She concluded afterwards that it had been unnecessary and with friends began an organization whose purpose was to support women who had had cesareans and to crusade for a drastic reduction in the rate at which they were being done. She believes that the amount of intervention in normal childbirth results from fundamental attitudes. Women's bodies were not designed to have babies without tools and tubes and chemicals and drugs and machines. This is a belief, this is an attitude that uh, many, many physicians as well as many women themselves hold on to. And until we change that attitude, until we begin to believe that women's bodies were absolutely designed to have babies and that babies were designed to come safely through the labor experience, uh, we are going to continue to intervene to use all of that medical technology that is not safe in most instances, certainly is not necessary in most instances, and which confuse the woman's body and confuse the baby and make it very, very difficult for her body to do what it's supposed to do, which is just to labor and have the baby. The cesarean section is the most dramatic of the interferences which Nancy Cohen refers to. The commonest reasons given for doing a cesarean are disproportion, meaning that the baby is presumed to be too big for the mother, or the failure of labor to progress. But Nancy Cohen believes that actual cases of disproportion are extremely rare, and the reasons for labor not progressing often have to do with the conditions under which the birth is taking place. Probably what it was is that the woman was not in the right position, that she wasn't free to walk and to squat and to do those kinds of things. Probably she wasn't being nourished during the course of her labor and delivery. Probably she had uh, all kinds of interventions that caused her to tighten up, and that also can cause failure to progress. Another reason is fetal distress. And of course, we know that in this country, in my country, one out of every 15 babies is uh, considered a distressed baby. And in the Netherlands, for example, it's one out of every 250 babies. So we need to take a look at why so many babies in this country are distressed. And of course, anytime you put a mother on her back, anytime you give a mother drugs, anytime you don't constantly reassure a mother lovingly, that can cause her to be upset. And as soon as the mother is upset because they are such a unit, the baby can then be upset. The IV itself, the fetal monitor, all of these things can literally contribute to fetal distress. So we need to take a good look at why we have so many babies that are distressed and then need to be born by cesarean section and uh, change what we do. Yet another reason why the cesarean section rate is so high is that it feeds on itself. Most doctors believe that once a woman has had a cesarean section, all subsequent births should also be by cesarean in order to guard against the danger that the uterus will rupture at the site of the original incision. Recognizing that this represented a much smaller risk than the possible complications of major surgery, Nancy Cohen tried to combat this trend by starting an organization called VBAC, short for Vaginal Birth After Caesarean. During the course of her work, she heard from over 50,000 men and women whose babies had been born by Caesarean, and she included some of these communications in a book called Silent Knife, in which she and co-author Lois Estner 
advised families on how to avoid future cesareans. In 1978, after discovering that the national maternal mortality rate had actually begun to rise again after many years of falling, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommended at least a trial of vaginal delivery for women who had had previous cesareans, but most doctors and hospitals remain hostile to the practice. Vivian Buzzoni had her first baby by cesarean section, and this was her experience when she went to the hospital after trying to have her second baby vaginally at home. I had stopped progressing at home and I decided to go to the hospital and, and didn't progress. And, and so the nursing staff got concerned and called the obstetrician who was on duty and he came and he, they gave me an epidural at that point, I think, and, and he came there where they were, had just finished giving me an epidural and proceeded to tell me that I was terribly irresponsible, that I was jeopardizing my life for the life of my baby, that uh, he was, I, I would consider what happened there abuse, like I considered he was very abusive and, and told us that, uh, told me that I was at risk and that, and uh, proceeded to terrify me. And I, I, he, he succeeded because I was afraid and I, I signed the consent for a cesarean and uh, they told me that my husband couldn't be there with me. And I asked that we, I said I really needed him there and uh, it's going to be so much easier for everybody if he's here because I will just feel so much more secure. And it'll be easier for you and it'll be easier for me. Uh, why do you want to make things more difficult? And then you should have planned this is that if that's what you wanted, he said. And uh, anyway, we just argued back and forth. The anesthetist who was a woman came in at this point and, and she said that my husband couldn't be there. And my husband came in at that point to see me and we kept on arguing that it was very important that he be there and my husband said at that point, why are you punishing us for not having done this differently? We thought we were doing our best. We do not deserve to be punished. And that, that brought a lot of hostility, but, I, but it did change their mind. Like that brought more hostility and, and, and more aggressiveness on the part of the obstetrician and the anesthetist. And then I was, I was brought into the operating room and I was strapped you know how they sort of tie your hands and that and my husband was standing beside me and I was terrified and the anesthetist was getting me ready and then she said when she figured that I was ready she said to the obstetrician cut and I was very afraid it was very strange to me that someone was telling a man to cut my body and I had lost perspective by then that I was having a baby I just thought I was being tortured and the epidural never quite took totally well on the right-hand side, but I was afraid to say something because they had told me that if there was any problem with the anesthetic, my husband would have to leave. And I was afraid to be left alone with all these people who were so angry at me. It was a very bad experience. I, I wish that it would never happen to any other woman. Uh, I feel it was very dangerous to my emotional health. Maybe the doctor's concern about my womb rupturing or whatever concerns he had. Um, I don't think those concerns were legitimate because I've done a lot of reading on the subject and I didn't think they were legitimate. But even if they had been, you know, I am a total person, I'm not just a womb. And to say that, just to put me through that was really endangering my emotional health. Um, you know, I, there was a nurse there that was really supportive. And I think if she hadn't been there, it would have probably been a lot more difficult. 
emotionally for me. Like, I don't know how, how come I didn't have a nervous breakdown <laughs> after everything that happened, you know, when you've been threatened so much. Vivienne Buzzoni says that by the time she got to the delivery room, she had lost all perspective on what was happening. She saw herself as surrounded by angry strangers, one of them armed with a knife. The obstetrician clearly saw the situation quite differently. He felt that she was involved in an antisocial and potentially murderous act towards her baby, and possibly herself as well. This righteous indignation was based on his belief that vaginal birth after cesarean is dangerous. But there is actually no warrant for this belief in the medical literature, as Nancy Cohen's exhaustive research on the subject showed. When I had my cesarean 13 years ago, I was told that all subsequent babies would have to be born by cesarean section. And as I went to the library, I could find nothing whatsoever to substantiate that. Every article that I read, and I started with articles from 1916 all the way through, just verified the fact that if a woman had had a cesarean section, there was no reason to believe that she could not have her next babies vaginally, except in rare circumstances. And that's what frustrated and confused and angered me so was that in interviewing 12 and 15 and 20 physicians in the greater Boston area, I wasn't able to find more than one who was the least bit interested or the least bit knowledgeable about this particular fact. And that's when the women that I was working with uh, started writing letters and started getting onto radio programs and television programs and started asking for magazine interviews. And that's when we started to bring to light the fact that uh, this was a real myth that was being perpetrated on the American woman, and that if she had had a cesarean section, it was indeed safer for her to go ahead and have her next babies vaginally. So uh, there isn't anything in the literature that would substantiate repeat cesarean except in rare circumstances. Despite the short shrift that Nancy Cohen initially got from the Boston obstetrician she contacted, other doctors who were willing to brave peer criticism began to allow vaginal birth after cesarean. The results were particularly striking in cases where the original cesarean had been done after a diagnosis of disproportion, supposedly an objective measurement. According to figures kept by VBAC groups, over 90% of these women went on to have successful vaginal births, often with a bigger baby. The fact that doctors have continued to believe, against the evidence, that vaginal births after cesarean are more dangerous than repeat cesareans is in no way rare or exceptional. Historically, scientific evidence has played no more than a minor role in determining obstetrical practice. Most major innovations have been introduced without any prior testing. General anesthetics were in use for childbirth for more than 20 years before it was shown that they had markedly increased infant mortality. Salt and weight gain restrictions during pregnancy had an equally long run before they were both proved harmful. The drug DES was given to over two million women worldwide before its grave side effects were discovered. And it was not until 1979 that the behavioral effects of obstetric drugs on children who were exposed to them at birth were finally established. Precedents like these have convinced reformers in obstetrics that all obstetrical practices must now be subjected to properly randomized and controlled trials. Some common procedures, like electronic monitoring of the fetal heart, have already been tested in this way and found to have no benefit. The question for the future, therefore, 
is whether obstetricians will be willing to base their practice not on their past experience or the norms of their local medical culture, but on the outcome of such trials. It may happen, but it will certainly require a dramatic break with the past. first section of this program, I argued that modern obstetrics has tended to separate the interests of babies from the interests of their mothers. The same tendency is evident on the frontiers of pediatrics, the neonatal intensive care nursery, where parents look on as helpless spectators at the heroic efforts being made to save their babies. In what follows, Galene Levesque tells the story of the life and death of her premature son, Jean-André. I didn't expect him to be born alive. But at the moment of birth, I heard a tiny little cry. It was just like a newborn kitten mewing. And I just sat up and I said, my baby. And the doctor said, yes, it's a boy and he's alive. Then the neonatal people just whizzed in. Uh, I felt like they were on air or on wheels or something, like robots. They just covered from head to toe and just rushed in and, and grabbed the baby and went over to a table and started working on him. And, um, and they kept talking to each other. And, and the doctor who, who delivered him said, oh, they're having trouble. He's so tiny. They can't find a tube small enough to go down his nose. And I couldn't see them because they surrounded him totally. But there was a window. And I could see the reflection in the window. And all I could see were these robots. <laughs> And this tiny little leg, as big as maybe my little finger, kicking up and down, up and down. And I thought, you know, there's life there. There's life. It was just so thrilling. And then they whisked him out and told me I'd be able to see him in about an hour. And then they took us back in about an hour to see him. And uh, I had to cry because I was always aware when he was in my womb. I was always aware of his environment. I was always talking to him and and sending him messages of love. And, and I was always aware that he was floating around freely and uh, kicking and, and enjoying life. I knew he was enjoying life because I was enjoying having him there and, and telling him that I loved him. And suddenly, there he was with his arms and his legs pinned down and with tubes coming out and monitors stuck all over. And his, almost his entire face was covered because he had tubes down his nose and, and the bandages covered his upper lip and right under his eye. And, and we walked in there and I looked at him and the nurse said, oh, his eyes are still fused together. He can't open them, yet he's too young. And we listened to what they said. And then I leaned over and I said, hiya, baby. Mommy and Daddy are here. And he opened his eyes and looked right at us. Oh, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was quite a battle for him to open his eyes. You could tell they were still kind of fused because he, he was pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling until finally they just sort of opened, you know. And I guess it was pretty exhausting because then he sort of closed them. And then the doctors and nurses kept talking. And my husband and I moved to the other side of the, of the isolate. And we both said something. And he tried to turn his head towards us and tried to open his eyes again, his little forehead all wrinkled up. It was amazing. 
in spite of all the voices around him, he still knew our voices, and he was our baby. It was was exciting. It was exciting. Jean-André's new environment was painful for his mother to contemplate. The bright lights, the loud noises, the atmosphere of perpetual crisis all contributed to her desire to protect and comfort her baby. And yet she was powerless because what she could do for him was not considered part of his treatment. When I saw him lying there, I had to cry because I knew that's not where he belonged. He belonged inside of me still. And if he had to be out, I had the most incredible, overwhelming urge to pick him up and to to take off my gown and to hold him next to my heart, to let him feel the warmth of our love and the security. And instead, all I could do was lean over this, this, this isolate and between the tubes try to try to reach him. And when he looked at me, there, <laughs> I, it sounds uh, like I'm romanticizing it, but when his eyes opened towards mine, I could just feel like our souls were meeting, but he knew that's not where he belonged either. He was a very active baby, and, and they discussed the possibility of paralyzing him in order to force his body to relax. But he was fighting. I mean, it was almost, you know, the instinctual animal thing of fighting. He knew that's not where he belonged. He knew that's not how he belonged. I read somewhere that, that human beings are instinctless, and I don't believe that. I felt total instinctual needs after his birth, and I know that he felt incredible instinctual needs for me, too. And it's got nothing to do with, with how we're raised or... or what our mothers teach us. That need that I had to hold him was something that I think must be genetically programmed from the beginning of time that couldn't be explained. Galene Levesque's conviction that she was what her baby needed, just as her baby was what she needed, could have no bearing on his treatment, which was based on an atomistic, analytical approach to his symptoms. The nursery staff could acknowledge and respect the fact that she had these needs, but they could not acknowledge that they had any pertinence to his care. That his mother might actually be the key to the baby's survival. That more than anything, he might need to be in her arms and away from the constant stimulation and the constant pricking and prodding that was involved in his care. These remained foreign ideas. On the third day of Jean-André's life, the pressure of the respirator which was assisting his breathing caused the rupture of one of his lungs, and resulted in a very serious brain hemorrhage. Other problems arose in the baby's internal organs, and eventually, Gaylene and her husband Bill, after deep and painful consideration, came to the nursery staff with a proposal. I said, you know, you're doing so much to him, and we didn't want such heroic measures. We wanted to allow something of nature to take place. We wanted as I said, I said, I want God to have a say in this too. You people keep thinking you're God and you're not. And you keep asking us to make decisions that I think are only decisions that, that God can make, that I have no right to making. And so we, what we asked them to do was not to take him off the respirator because we knew that would mean certain death, but not to treat 
we wanted to see which way things would go. Either he would start to get better. I wanted a sign from God that he was either going to start getting better or start getting worse, and that that would lead us to making the right decision or, or guide us in some way. And they agreed to that. The thing is, my husband and I sat and talked for three hours straight before we came to that decision. There were an awful lot of things to take into consideration. It's not an easy decision to come to. We spoke for three hours about that. They came in and we talked to them for about an hour about it, and they agreed that was going to be fine. That afternoon I was in the nursery watching my baby, and uh, they started giving him a drug. And I said, what is that drug for? Oh, we're, he's got a kidney problem and we're treating it. I said, well, I thought I asked that no treatment be given for anything until you discussed it with us because we wanted to see, oh, no, this is routine. Well, then before we knew it, reviving him when he had, you know, uh, was obviously dying was routine. Giving him all of these drugs for these different ailments were routine. And they never spoke to us again until they wanted to do heart surgery. It was clear to Gaylene that the nursery staff had been sincere in their agreement not to take further heroic measures. However, they were unable to carry out their part of the bargain. Their system was too compelling. Each step led logically to the next. Each alarm led logically to a response. And they were simply unable to stop. They get so caught up in, in the romanticism of the adventure the adventure. I, I kept sort of seeing sparks of that as they tried new things on the baby all the time, you know. Uh, well, we'll try this. We may be able to save him. You know, before the baby was born, I said to the doctor from neonatal, I said, I want you to understand that my husband and I feel very strongly that there are things worse than death and we don't want to subject our child to something worse than death. But they kept sort of holding out to us the, the promise of life. You know, well, if we do these things, he might get better. John andre did not get better. And at last, according to her wish, he was put into his mother's arms, where he died peacefully. A nurse stood behind her. I said, can we take the tubes out now? And she said, oh, uh, not till the doctor comes. I'll go get the doctor. And when she came back, she had, her eyes were all red, and I knew she had wept, you know. And, oh, it just made me feel like somebody else saw he was a human being. And, and I appreciated that. And I said to her, she said, if you and your husband want to go in the other room, I'll clean the baby up and get him ready for you. And I said, no, I want to help. And she said, okay. So I let her take the tube out of the nose, but I took out the IVs and, and stopped the bleeding. And, oh, it, it just made me feel more complete to know that at last I was doing something for my baby. I mean, sure, he was dead then, but I had the opportunity to pull out those awful needles that had been torturing him and, and to stop the bleeding and to wash his little face and to help dress him. I mean, she was helping me. We were helping each other. But there was that kind of respect that this was my baby and that, that it was okay for me to be there.
Gaylene Levesque's frustrating experience of trying to mother a baby in hospital has been shared by many other women. Vivian Buzzoni, who earlier described her distressing experience of cesarean section, found herself in similar circumstances when it was discovered that her baby had a serious heart defect. He underwent major surgery, and she subsequently spent three weeks in the hospital with him. Although she had an unusually good relationship with the two doctors who supervised his care, she also found that she was powerless to make any decisions regarding her baby's treatment. They were very nice about trying to give me the feeling, but I didn't have a say, and I know that. I mean, I know that if I had said, well, at one point before the decision of the surgery, he was put on, they were going to put him on an artificial respirator, and they did, and I felt really strongly that I didn't want that, and I just said, it's natural for people to breathe on their own. If he can't handle breathing, then he must, he's, he's dying. And, and I think that should be respected and that he should die. I remember saying to the doctor, give me my baby. I just want to help him die. And I knew that I, that, I, that I didn't have a say in the matter. Like I knew when I was asking him that, that I was asking him that because I needed to verbalize what I felt, but not because it would matter a at all, what I felt, you know, if the doctors feel that that the baby has a chance to live and that they want to do an operation, no matter how experimental it is, they can always sort of put it to the children's aid that that they, this, this is in the best interest of the baby. And the, the doctor's opinion of what is in the best interest of the baby is going to carry more weight than a parent's opinion. And so I knew that even if I didn't agree, I had to, I had no choice. Vivian Buzzoni not only felt powerless to affect the course of her baby's treatment, she also found it hard to care for him and be close to him in hospital. It's very hard to really be close to a baby. It's not, like, it's not considered part of health, closeness in hospitals, I don't think. They don't have their equipment built for mothers to be close to their babies as, as a big priority. You know, it's not a priority that you hold them. When it's possible, they try to help you do it. You know, I remember climbing inside oxygen tents and being, you know, being, fold my body in four or five parts, you know, trying to, to hold him and, and, and have him close to me. And it's cold inside those oxygen tents. I didn't like him having him there all by himself. But it's, it's, it's hard, you know. There's a lot of barriers that are put between a mother and a baby. Vivianne eventually realized that her baby wasn't getting any better, and she decided to take him home. The doctors were still wanting to see, and they felt that it was risky that he could deteriorate and that he could... And then was when I just said, I'm taking my baby home no matter what. You can call the children's aid, you can call the police department, you can do what you want, but I'm walking out of this hospital with my baby. And then... Um, the cardiol I had this conversation with the cardiologist, and I remember asking about what the risks were involved, and him saying to me that the risk that he could deteriorate, and I said, I can always ask for help if he gets worse. And he said that he could die sadly, and I said, he could die sadly here, and I may not be here because I cannot be here 24 hours a day, and, and that would be much more devastating. And so he agreed to speak to the pediatrician, and the pediatrician was most agreeable. And then they talked about it, and, and the, it was very peaceful discharge. There were no fights about it or anything like that. The baby improved almost as soon as he got home, and Vivianne was overjoyed. But after several weeks, he began to sicken again. 
and when his breathing became very labored, she returned to hospital with him. A second operation was done on his heart, and during the operation he died. Afterwards, she felt grateful that she had taken him home and had at least those few short weeks in which to feel that he was truly hers. But she also had a curious sense of something incomplete in her relationship to the doctors and the hospital. After your baby's dead, that's it. The hospital drops you like a hot potato. I mean, it's like you've had all this support and all this network that you've, in spite of yourself, have bonded with, because I did end up bonding with this hospital and with some people there. It was an organization that I had become part of. My life had revolved around when I would walk through those halls and it was part of my baby and my life with him. And then once he was dead, that was it. No more, no more contact. Nobody contacts you. Nobody sends you an, a sympathy card. Uh, you know, all it happens is that someone says to you, you know, all it happens is that you don't get the baby bonus anymore. And, and if you've gotten an extra baby bonus, that makes sure that they retract it from the month. <laughs> you know what I mean? Before that they ask you to pay it back. And, and it's like, uh, like you grieve for that, for those people because they've become part of your life, especially if they were there at the time that you said goodbye to this baby. And I mean, I think of my friends that I love so much. I mean, the, the doctors and the nurses in the hospital knew my baby more than any of my friends. So it was like I had shared that baby rather than with my community of friends in my neighborhood with the staff at the hospital. And then once he was dead, they were no longer there. I mean, for them, I was just a case. Vivian Buzzoni's sense of a deep but unreciprocated bond with the hospital brings into stark relief the difference between what these events had meant to her and what they had meant to the hospital staff. The hospital takes over responsibility for the child, but ultimately it is the parents who go on caring, past even the end of a baby's life. What Vivian experienced after her baby's death was a continuation of what she had felt during his life, that her emotions could never really touch the technological rationale of the system to which his sickness had made her baby belong. The hospital could recognize these emotions as a problem to be sympathetically managed, but it could never concede that her needs and abilities as a mother should be the active heart of her baby's care and all decisions made about it. We chose to present Gaylene Levesque and Vivian Busoni in this program, not because their babies died, but because we felt that they had seen to the very center of the contradiction between medicine and the family. This contradiction is not necessarily in the nature of things, but until medicine becomes the servant of the family and not its master, it can never be resolved, and the reasons of the heart and the logic of the machine will remain unalterably opposed. So far, we have considered the ways in which medicine has expropriated the family's primary responsibility for birth and baby care. In the time remaining, I want to turn to some efforts which have been made to overcome medical domination of the family. 
One of the most remarkable reversals of the established trend has occurred in the area of breastfeeding. Until recently, this entirely natural and spontaneous act was carried out according to strict medical rules. But beginning in the 1950s, some women began to wonder whether the doctors actually knew what they were talking about. One of them was Niles Newton, now a professor of psychology at Northwestern University. She began with a survey of the existing medical literature on the subject. I read the de medical texts and I said, gosh, this is old wives' tales. And then I went to a veterinary library and I found that the uh, veterinarians knew a lot more about lactation because money depended on producing the milk. So that, uh, I, that's how I got started uh, with my husband in doing the research on the um, milk ejection or letdown reflex, which was well known to dairy farmers. They knew you had to uh, treat cows gently in order to let them, uh, get them to let down their milk. And uh, I was reading a dairy journal that said, of course, you should not try to start uh, milk cows in a strange barn. And I thought, my goodness, what's happening to our mothers? They're starting breastfeeding in a strange place. And the dairy journal said, strangers upset the uh, letdown reflex, so the cow won't let down milk. Well, we surround our mothers with strangers at the time when they're trying to breastfeed their babies. So I got interested in breastfeeding to see what really uh, goes on. And my husband and I published a number. I was naive enough to think that if you proved it with statistics and experiments, that the society would change. So we published about nine papers demonstrating what we thought the importance of suckling, of demand feeding, uh, of calmness and quiet during nursing, and nothing happened, even though you, we published in uh, top medical journals. And that's why I've become so interested in the consumer movement, because it was not until a Leche League came along, and actually as consumers applied pressure and emotional support, that the patterns of breastfeeding began to change. The La Leche League was formed by seven Chicago women in 1956. Some of them had been unsuccessful in breastfeeding their first babies on the rigid schedules then being proposed by pediatricians, and with subsequent babies, they had learned by experience to leave the schedule to the baby. They then resolved to make their experiences in successful breastfeeding available to other women in the neighborhood by holding monthly meetings at their homes. Today, the La Leche League has groups in cities and towns all across North America and around the world. Niles Newton believes that their success has a lot to do with the way in which they organized. I think it's because they have um, organized in a very efficient way, which is a small group uh, method of organization, a few people getting to know each other very well and giving each other emotional support. It's one of the most efficient ways of uh, going against uh, the cultural pressure. The early Christians, for instance, met in houses, small groups meeting in houses. The communist cell 
is another example of a small group that can withstand cultural pressure. And in the case of La Leche League, it's a small group withstanding the constant suggestions to do otherwise. The La Leche League succeeded by reconstructing the neighborly networks which medicine had tried so hard to discredit. League members began to trust and rely on one another. Their confidence in their intuitive connection with their children grew. And for both these reasons, they found it less necessary to rely on doctors, except in emergencies. For some families, the whole pattern of their lives began to change. The baby was taken back into bed with the parents. Rules were relaxed and family life regained some of the sensuality it had lost with the adoption of industrial-style household routines. As far as breastfeeding was concerned, the La Leche League functioned as a kind of laboratory in which new ways of doing things could be tested. Pediatricians, for example, had argued that babies must have solid food even in the first months of their lives. Mothers breastfeeding on demand were able to show their doctors six-month-old babies in glowing health who had never had any supplementary food. Only when the medical rules were circumvented or ignored could new possibilities be recognized. And this pattern holds for alternative movements in childbirth as well. Barbara Katz-Rothman is a sociologist at Baruch College in New York and the author of Giving Birth. That other treatments can result in healthy babies doesn't come to their attention until you start looking at the alternative movement where people move outside of hospitals and say, look, this is how we handled um, shoulder dystocia, this, the shoulder being stuck. Instead of, instead of cutting into the woman, instead of using forceps, instead of any of that, um, we just let the woman wiggle around and she wiggled and turned from side to side and wiggled the baby free. Now that would not be seen on a delivery table you know, in 150 years strapped to a delivery table, you couldn't wiggle a baby free. You can't move. Um, once you moved outside of medical control, these alternatives begin to be apparent. Medicine didn't believe that you could deliver a baby, particularly not a big baby, over an intact perineum. But an eight-pound baby had to tear the mother. How could it not? And to prevent the tearing, they cut. And so you never saw an intact perineum. Um, when people started to refuse the episiotomy, when people started to move outside of the institution, you saw eight, nine-pound babies being born without any tearing at all. And so the alternative reality forced itself to their attention. Much of the impetus for change in obstetrics has come from the home birth movement. It has produced a new generation of midwives for whom natural birth is the norm and permitted the rediscovery of possibilities which were simply being suppressed by hospital management of childbirth. The medical profession in Canada has been extremely hostile to home birth and has taken every step short of legal prosecution of midwives to prevent it. But there is one Western country where home birth continues to be a recognized part of the obstetrical system, and that is the Netherlands. Dr. J.G. Klusterman is a Dutch obstetrician who recently visited Toronto in order to attend the annual Congress of the Midwives Alliance of North America. I must confess that uh, uh, 10 years ago, I thought I was uh, fighting a completely lost battle. We were the only country in Western Europe with a rather high number of home confinements. 40% of all children in Holland are brought 
and to the world under the guidance of a midwife alone without the doctor present. The results of these deliveries are uh, perfect. Uh, it's something like two per thousand perinatal mortality. But every year this number uh, went down. Uh, from four, 58 till 78, there was a decrease in home confinement from 70% to 35%. So um, many people said it's a question of 15 years, and then in Holland it also will be over with this traditional way of having babies. And then we have proven for the re to the rest of the world what Heine already has said about Holland. At the crack of doom, I go to Holland because in that country happens everything 20 years later. But now suddenly, in 50, in, in 78, the decrease um, did not go further. We have 35% in 78, and we have 35.5% in 83. So in six years, there has been no further decrease, and perinatal mortality had gone down in the same way as it went down before. So this is an excellent proof that the improvement in obstetrics is not caused by the wiping out of home confinement, but by a better fight against pathology. And physiology is a normal thing. We cannot improve. In North America, complete hospitalization of childbirth has tended to produce a system in which all labors are subjected to intensive medical management. In the Dutch system, the existence of home birth as a legitimate option has worked to protect normal birth from undue interference. I think that the woman with a very high chance, more than 95%, that she will be able to do everything on her own power, that such a woman has a better chance of normal birth at home than in a hospital. Because a hospital likes to seduct seduce, to seduce <laughs> women um, towards uh, intervention, because everything is at hand. And that can be an advantage if you need it. But if you don't need it, then it can be a, a dangerous thing, because all these things, if they are not necessary, have also a dangerous by-effect. Sometimes, for a healthy woman, a hospital can be more dangerous than her own home, that's true. This fact is often overlooked, says Dr. Klusterman, because a double standard is applied to the question of the relative safety of home and hospital birth. If at home happens anything uh, that could have been prevented in hospital, then it's clear to everybody that it is a pity that that woman was not in hospital. If in hospital happens anything that could not have happened at home because this case of intervention would not have taken place, then nobody will say this is because of the fact that you are in hospital. Only by statistical means you can show that the number of interferences, of interventions in, in some hospitals is so extremely high that in many cases it must have been without good reason. And if something happens uh, in such a case, then it's caused by the hospital. But in an individual case, you never can prove this. Only statistically, you can show that in a country with many home confinements, uh, the average number of cesarean sections is below 
And in countries with total hospitalization, it's always above 10% and often 20% even. And that, from an epidemiological point of view, you can say that it is not justified, such a high number of interferences. Whether undue interference with childbirth can be reduced in Canada depends on how the medical system reacts to pressure for change. The signs at the moment are contradictory. On the one hand, there is more interference than ever, if one judges, for example, by the still-increasing cesarean section rate. On the other hand, one hears now and then about births in hospital that have been left entirely alone. I would like to conclude with one such story, told by Toronto midwife Mary Sharp. We labored at home, Ginny Ann and David and I, until she was about seven centimeters dilated. And then we called her doctor, and he called to say that we were coming in and that we really wanted the birthing room. And when we got there, we were delighted because the birthing room indeed was free. And it's, it's a very pleasant room with no clock in it and not a lot of equipment around. And a nice bed, nice big bed and easy chairs and so on. There was a relief nurse on who wasn't an obstetrical nurse, and she found it very difficult to find heart tones, so she was quite grateful that I would be finding them, and essentially left us all alone. Ginny Ann's membranes ruptured. As she was squatting, she had enormous uh, freedom of movement. Nobody was around, so I listened to heart tones to make sure that everything was okay after the membranes ruptured, and went out to tell the nurses, and nobody appeared for an hour. And she began to push, and still nobody appeared. So, I, you know, David called her doctor, and the doctor appeared, and he said it was a little bit strange that a nurse hadn't called him, but there was no nurse around to ask. And he came, and then that relief nurse went off. off uh, and another nurse came in who was very friendly. And, the, and then they asked if a student nurse could come because she'd never seen a natural birth. And the student came and took pictures and was just so ecstatic. And Ginny Ann decided that she wanted to squat for pushing for a while. And then she got up on the bed and she pushed for a while on her side in David's arms. And then she got on her hands and knees and nobody told her how to push or what she should do. She just did it. Her body knew what to do. And... Uh, she was pushing the, the baby out. The student nurse was snapping pictures. She was so excited. I, I, I don't know whether the pictures will, will be very clear. And her husband, David, was going back and forth from, from Ginny Ann, kissing her and coming back to look at the baby coming out. And as the baby came through Ginny Ann's legs, she was able to see her baby's head. And then the baby just slid out onto the bed, and the doctor moved the baby in between her legs, um, and she was still crouching on her hands and knees, but she could get a beautiful, she had beautiful access to her baby, that's all I can say, she, uh -huh. and she was delighted, she was touching her baby, and laughing, and crying, and kissing her baby, it was just incredibly wonderful, and she was in a very active position, to, to be with her baby rather than lying back on her back with sometimes her feet in stirrups as most births occur now but even natural births now you know they're nearly they nearly always take place with the mom on her back with her 
her feet perhaps supported by her husband or, or a friend or a nurse, but they're nearly always in that position. And then the doctor hands the baby to the mother and the father. Here, there was something very active. The first real picking up of the baby happened by the mother. So I think there are some advances, but you see, surprisingly enough, it's not what the hospitals do that make it such a, a beautiful experience usually. It's what the hospitals don't do. You've been listening to the concluding program of our four-part series, Doctoring the Family. The series was researched by Jutta Mason, written by Jutta Mason and David Cayley, and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations were by Lorne Tulk, production by Jill Eisen with the assistance of Alison Moss. Our special thanks go to Hedy Meissen, Heidi Beschman, and Richard Cayley. A printed transcript of this four-part series is available for $5. To order a copy, write Doctoring the Family, care of CBC Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Please enclose a check or money order for $5 payable to CBC Transcripts. Please don't send cash through the mail, and please be prepared to wait four to six weeks for delivery. And you can also order a free reading list to accompany this series. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And join us again on Sunday evening for the final program in our repeat series on Oscar Wilde. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>